power play for this Thursday, September 29th. I'm Joyce Napier. Evan Solomon is away today. Coming up on the show, a deadly trail of destruction. This could be the deadliest hurricane in Florida's history. Hurricane Ian rips through Florida. Now a massive search and rescue operation is underway. We bring you to the latest from the Sunshine State. And a Russian takeover? What Putin is trying to do is completely illegitimate. Russia is set to begin the process of annexing four Ukrainian regions after claiming victory in referendums condemned by Ukrainian allies as shams. What happens to the Ukrainians facing Russian rule? And how will the international community respond? We bring in Canada's UN Ambassador Bob Ray. Then, the road to reconciliation. You're learning our history so you can do better, build a better country for Indigenous people and for all Canadians. Governor-General Mary Simon addresses students in Saskatchewan ahead of the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. But is the federal government living up to its promises to Indigenous communities? We bring in Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations Chief Bobby Cameron. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. We're continuing to see deadly rainfall, catastrophic storm surges, roads and homes flooded. We're seeing millions of people without power and thousands hunkered down in schools and community centers. They're wondering what's going to be left. What's going to be left when they get to go home, quote unquote, home, or even if they have a home to go to? Devastation and destruction in Florida. U.S. President Joe Biden says Hurricane Ian could be one of the deadliest hurricanes in Florida's history. Ian hit Florida as a Category 4 hurricane, bringing catastrophic flooding and an almost four-meter storm surge, leaving more than two million without power. Ian has since been downgraded to a tropical storm, but there are concerns that it could strengthen and become a hurricane again as it moves along Florida's Atlantic coast. Can the state keep up rescue efforts? And where is Ian heading next? Let's find out. And joining me now from Tampa, Florida, is ABC's Morgan Norwood. Hey, Morgan, good to see you. Thanks for being there. Give us an idea of what the situation is, where you are, and what are the hardest-hit areas? Hi, Joyce. Thank you for having me. Well, I am live here in Tampa, Florida. You know, originally Tampa was supposed to get the brunt of the storm. Of course, we know that the storm's path shifted further south, southwest Florida, uh, taking on the direct hit. But here in Tampa certainly didn't escape Ian's wrath. I mean, there have been reports of downed trees, power lines, things of that nature. Even driving in, we got uh, to see some of that debris. But uh, even as we sort of dodged a bullet here in Tampa, not the case for everyone else, especially in southwest Florida, Fort Myers, Sarasota County. County. They really got slammed with this storm. And even right now, reports of water rescues, I mean, bridges completely washed out, roads closed, and uh, up to 2 million power outages across the state. So Ian really left a trail of devastation up and down the Florida Peninsula. I mean, your governor, the governor of Florida, uh, said the storm surge was of biblical proportions, people hard to reach. You said it in Naples and Fort Myers, power outages. What are the priorities for the crews out there today? 
Yeah, the priorities here are definitely going to be these water rescues. I mean, uh, up until the point where that shelter in place order lifted for some of the most hard hit areas, first responders were out trying to get to some of the people that they could not rescue overnight. Remember, they had reminded people, you've got to hunker down. You cannot venture out. And unfortunately, some folks um, did find out the hard way. So now they're able to start running those calls again. So we're seeing up to uh, 500 water rescues across the state, and especially in those hard hit areas, areas like Sanibel, uh, Naples, even inland areas, Orlando, Florida, reports of dozens of water rescues there just because, as you mentioned, the governor says this is a 500 year flood event. So what are you expecting, you know, authorities, federal government and, and, and the local governments to do? How are they how are they able to respond? Right, and they've been talking about this for the past few days here. We know that the governor uh, has been calling on FEMA to to help and, and come in with that. We know the president just today signing off on that disaster declaration, calling the governor uh, firsthand and talking through some of the needs here. So uh, we know that there are millions of meals on the ground. We know that there are generators. We know that there are shelters opening up. We also know that FEMA has sent their own search and rescue teams, thousands of National Guard soldiers from several states, all descending on the state of Florida here. So this is going to be a long road to recovery. Uh, and as far as that disaster declaration from the president, that unlocks federal funding for whatever they may need for nine of the hardest hit counties. And now Ian is heading somewhere else. Right. Other states are now bracing for this storm. Uh, the, the interesting thing about Ian, it, it kind of crawled through Florida and now it's going to spin out toward the Atlantic and then loop back around and hit South Carolina. So they are bracing for this uh, as a category one storm. We're going to be keeping an eye on when that changes over. Uh, but certainly the state of Cal uh, uh, South Carolina is getting prepared for that uh, state of emergency underway right now. Joyce. That's ABC's Morgan Norwood in Tampa, Florida. Thanks so much for taking the time, Morgan, and stay safe. Thank you for having me, Joyce. And here at home, the Prime Minister visited Quebec's Magdalene Islands, continuing his tour of communities hit by Hurricane Fiona. It was an opportunity to uh, connect with people and hear from business owners, uh, from fishers, uh, from seniors, uh, from uh, uh, citizens who uh, obviously went through uh, the same storm that uh, hit really hard in other parts of Atlantic Canada, uh, but at the same time uh, talking about how uh, we're going to be there as partners uh, going forward, uh, working with the province, working with municipalities, working with uh, individuals and, and uh, communities that need support. The Prime Minister met with seniors, local fishers and business owners impacted by the storm. Earlier this week, Quebec Premier François Legault offered compensation to those whose homes and businesses were damaged in the storm. You're learning about the hardships Indigenous people endured and the wonderful, resilient spirit we possess. You're learning from Indigenous knowledge, our values and our contributions. You're learning our history so you can do better, build a better country for Indigenous people and for all Canadians. Education is the key to reconciliation. Learn about Indigenous history to build a better future. That's the message from Governor General Mary Simon and head of the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Tomorrow will mark the second National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. So where does Canada fall 
on the road of reconciliation. It's been over a year since 215 suspected unmarked graves were detected at a former residential school in Kamloops. And of course, this year, the Pope delivered a historic apology to survivors for the Catholic Church's role in residential schools. But is the federal government doing enough to support First Nations still living with the trauma of residential schools? And how are First Nations navigating the searches for unmarked graves? Let's find out. Joining me now is Federation of Sovereign <clears throat> Indigenous Nations Chief Bobby Cameron. Hi, Chief Cameron. Always good to see you. Thanks for joining us. Um, tomorrow, some provinces, tomorrow, uh, some provinces and territories will pause for Truth and Reconciliation Day. Chief Cameron, is this progress? You know, I'll say any small step to a more collaborative approach, respectful approach is, is a good thing. It's a positive thing. But the road to reconciliation takes on many forms of, of uh, reconciliation efforts from everybody involved. It takes a whole lot of organizations and people right across this world internationally to understand that we as First Nation people are the original people of these lands of water. We have inherent rights. We have treaty rights, which are of international law. This we know from the stories we're told, as oral teachings have told many of us. The road to reconciliation takes on many forms, and we just got to keep moving forward one step at a time, one day at a time, with all our partners. But do you think, Chief, that every province and territory should, should make this day a statutory holiday? Is that important to you? Uh, yeah, it's, I'll say this. It's a step in the right direction for these provinces that have not yet established it as a statutory holiday. And here in Saskatchewan, uh, the Saskatchewan party has decided not to. Maybe one day they will. It's a step in the right direction. That's reconciliation. As I said before, there are many forms, definitions of reconciliation. The far more important ones are obviously the, the true implementation of our inherent treaty rights. And all those sectors that fall under it, the natural resources, the economic development, the treaty right to medicine chest laws, our treaty right to shelter, our treaty right to hunt, fish, trap, and gather are all, are all important items for First Nation people right across this country. So reconciliation, it, it takes on a true definition for many of us in, in the spirit that our future generations will have a better life than we did. And let's, let's pave that road for them. Let's put that legacy forward for them. But do you feel these partners, uh, Chief Cameron, mm. are listening to you? Are, are you on the same page? <clears throat> in, some, in some senses of the word, we are. But there is definitely more effort that's needed. And more important than effort, implementation of what each First Nation and is given their recommendations and given their direction forward. And, you know, whether it's a state holiday or not, we 100% support it. And every province and every First Nation, every person right across this country should be fully supported. You represent over 70 nations, Chief. How many nations are currently searching former residential schools? Can you explain what that process is? Well, it's a lengthy process. There's protocols involved. There's traditions that are that have to take place. 
it's putting the pieces of the puzzle together. And some of these puzzles involve millions of pieces, literally. From every, every tree, I mean, all these, all of these things combined to finally put an end to some of those stories of those that are missing, that are still need to be found. It's important that for each family member and the survivors and the descendants, that they have closure and that we continue to support that healing journey. We all need to heal one way or another. Chief, before I let you go, I want to ask you about James Smith Cree Nation, the site of the horrific mass stabbing. Governor General Simon visited yesterday. Are you in touch with, with that First Nation? How is the community coping? Well, it's going to be a long road to recovery for sure. Uh, the healing has begun, but, you know, it's one day at a time. It's one day at a time, and we've certainly done our best, and we'll continue to be there for every family, every member for James Smith Creek Nation to, to, to be with them, just to be their ear, to support them any way we can. This is what the FSIN is about. We, we're servants of the people. And, looking. and our thoughts are with that First Nation uh, Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations Chief Bobby Cameron. Thanks for joining us. I know the connection was a little bit difficult, but thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Take care, everybody, and God bless. And tomorrow, CTV News Channel will have special coverage all day long on the Na National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And coming up, Russia plans to annex more Ukrainian territory. Will this prompt the West to step up its response beyond economic sanctions? We speak to Canada's ambassador to the UN, Bob Ray, next. Don't go away. sham referendums that are an attempt to arbitrarily redraw the map uh, and actually an attempt to delegitimize de uh, Ukrainians' defense of their homeland. Uh, it's unacceptable and uh, the world will continue to condemn it in the strongest terms. Russian President Vladimir Putin is expected to sign documents tomorrow to formally annex four Russian-held territories in Ukraine. The Kremlin stage referendums held in these regions have widely been denounced by Ukraine and its Western allies and have been dubbed a sham. This stirs up flashbacks to 2014 when Russia annexed the southern Ukraine territory of Crimea, which also followed a widely discredited referendum. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres called the annexation illegitimate and a direct violation of international law. So how should Canada and the West respond to Putin's annexation plan and will this turn the tide in Russia's favor? Joining me now is Canada's ambassador to the U United Nations, Bob Ray. Uh, Bob Ray, always good to see you. Welcome to Power Play. Um, so it's been called a, a sham designed as a threat rather than something that is even, even believable. I mean, the results rank from 99% in favor of Russian annexation to high 80s. You know, are you even surprised by these results uh, when people practically voted at gunpoint? Well, Joyce, you've got to remember a few things. I'm, I'm surprised, that, in fact, that some of these facts just haven't, been, haven't come out. 
I mean, the there are millions of people, millions of people, Ukrainian speakers, millions of Russian speakers, uh, who've left the region. They've left this this territory. It's been a an area of war for the last uh, several years, and most intensively in the last uh, the last year. So, literally, hundreds of thousands of people have been expelled, or have left, or have been killed uh, as a result of uh, the Russian aggression. So, uh, how can you talk about having a referendum? I mean, first of all, the places are occupied by Russian soldiers. Secondly, the Ukrainian, the displaced Ukrainian population is nearly 15 million people. Uh, many of them have left from eastern Ukraine. So, how you can talk about? Uh, a, a base upon which you have an election, you have a referendum called for elections to be referendum to be held within three days of their being called. I mean, it, it's to call it a sham is 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 a is an exaggeration. It's more it's worse than a sham. Um, it's a way of trying to uh, claim territory, some of which they don't even occupy at the moment because they've lost territory in the last in the last uh, several. Uh, Several weeks, so I mean, yeah. I, I don't think we should uh, dignify it by even referring to them as as real elections or real referenda. This thing is a complete propaganda fake. The fact that you're putting up pictures of a, a bunch of people voting is just a, an indication that we're all we're all targets of this propaganda. Um, this yeah. is not a real thing. Uh, what is a real thing is that Mr. Putin is claiming territory that is not his. That is in fact stolen from Ukraine, uh, and that he will use that as a pretext to change the narrative of the war, uh, from saying that we're no, no longer will he will he he will say well you can't call me the aggressor because I'm now defending my homeland, which is just another another pro propaganda trick. It's a gambit, okay. um, and we shouldn't we shouldn't dignify it by saying that it's something that that we're going to accept or tolerate in any way, what shape or form. We shouldn't do so. Okay, but I, I, I hear you, and, and, you know, you make really good points, but let me ask you this, Thank then. You. What, can, uh, what can be done about this? I mean, what can the West do? He now says, hey, uh, okay, everybody, this is mine, and um, anybody, will be, anybody who, te who, who even tries to defend it will, will be considered an aggressor by Russia. So you, you're sitting at the U.N. Tell me, what can the international community or the allies or the West do now? What what Putin calls those people who are defending their country, Ukraine, uh, is irrelevant. Uh, we've gone way beyond that. Uh, the answer, the simple answer to your question is, what do we do? And the answer is, we keep fighting. Uh, we, we don't stop fighting because uh, uh, Mr. Putin has decided to put a, a bunch of, a bunch of uh, marks on a map. Uh, he doesn't control the map. He's losing control of his territory, and he can have all the all the changing of maps that he wants. Nobody's going to recognize them. Um, he'll have a few, maybe the North Korea and a few other rogue states will recognize it. Nobody else will, and uh, the fight continues. Uh, Ukraine is in the fight for its life, and the rest of us who are supporting Ukraine are in a fight for the integrity of the of, of the global system that's been in place since 1945. And if Russia thinks they can unilaterally, on their own, simply change the rules and that we'll all eventually succumb, I think Mr. Putin is making a huge mistake. 
in his conscription campaign. Let me interrupt you on, on that point. But he has actually uh, changed the rules and, no, he hasn't. and, no, and he hasn't. annexed these regions, calls them Russia now. No, so he hasn't. Concretely, no, no, no we, we don't recognize the annexation. Joyce, you're giving in to the annexation. You're making a terrible mistake in the way you presented this argument. He's, he's not changed the rules. He's simply made a speech declaring something that's his. That's not his. And there's no way in the world that anybody else should recognize it. I, 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 think, it's, I think we're making a colossal mistake by saying, oh, now that he's done this, we're all going to have to give in. I mean, I've, I've been arguing with people about this war for the, last, uh, for the last year. It's a war. And Ukraine cannot be allowed to lose this war. And that is a fundamental premise of the arguments that we're making at the United Nations. And it's a fundamental premise of Canadian foreign policy. We are not going to allow Mr. Putin to win this war. It doesn't matter what he does in terms of annexing or anything else he does. And the, and the more gambits and the more games he plays, the more things he comes up with, the more we just have to fight him harder. And that's exactly what we need to do. So, Ambassador, what can the West do? What can the Allies do, Canada included, for those people in those annexed regions now? Well, most of me, those, Joyce, those non-annexed annexed regions. Let's get real. The, the city of Mariupol is one of the major cities in the annexed regions, so-called. You may have seen the pictures, Joyce, on your television screen of the city of Mariupol, which has been destroyed, of a city of 400,000 people, which has now been redu reduced uh, to well under 100,000 people. Uh, we need to understand the Russians have, are, have been destroying these places. And then having destroyed them, they say now they're ours. So they're ethnically cleansed them, they physically destroyed them, and now they say they're ours and they'll move their people in. We will continue to do everything we can from a humanitarian perspective from anybody who's caught in the middle of this war. But we have not been allowed by the Russians to go in and provide humanitarian assistance to anybody who's been in the, uh, in the occupied territories. And, 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 that, and that nothing that's happened has changed that situation whatsoever. We have to continue to support Ukraine. I suspect there will be even more intense discussions within NATO about what more we can do. The Americans have just announced some major efforts to reinforce uh, Ukraine's capacity to respond to what Russia is doing. Russia has been facing a series of military defeats. They're losing about somewhere between 200 and 300,000 people. They have more men leaving the country than they've been able to successfully conscript. I don't know how anybody can think that, that, that somehow Putin is on a winning ticket here. He's not on a winning ticket. He is, he is losing, and he's losing badly. And everything he's doing is trying to change the rules of the game, trying to change the narrative, trying to change the tune. And I don't think anybody in their right mind is going to sing to his tune. Well, Bob Ray, Canada's UN ambassador, uh, thanks so much for this. And I'm sure we're going to be talking about this, sadly, again. I hope so. And coming up, dental hypocrisy. What are Tory MPs, why are Tory rather MPs opposing national dental care when they get government-funded care themselves? Our Friday strategy session is standing by. Stay with PowerPlay. It's not a dental care program. Uh, uh, and the federal government ought not be delivering 
um, healthcare services, uh, certainly in, you know, without having had a conversation with the provinces. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous that Conservative MPs are planning to vote against giving kids dental care when their leader has had publicly paid dental care for nearly two decades. And welcome back. Battle over dental care. The Liberals introduced a bill for dental care benefits for kids from low-income families. This measure is part of the government's affordability plan to help address the rising cost of living. The Conservative opposed the measure, saying it is an intrusion on provincial jurisdiction over health care. They argue the government should be instead focusing on lowering the carbon tax and CPP contributions to help the cost of living. Dental care was a pillar of the Liberal NDP confidence and supply agreement. So is it bad optics for the Tories to oppose dental care for kids? <coughs> Excuse me. Or is it bad optics for the Liberals and NDP to frame dental care as an affordability measure? Let's bring in our strategy session to weigh in. Greg McEachern from Proof Strategies Leans Liberal. He's here in studio. Gary Keller from whoops. Gary Keller from Strategy Corp has a conservative perspective, and Anne McGrath is the NDP's national director. Nice to see you all. Happy Thursday. Um, Gary, let me start with you. The Conservatives oppose the dental care program up to $650 per kid for lower-income families when MPs get a generous plan for themselves, their kids. Um, is this good political optics? Yeah, I think the Conservatives are uh, fighting this or opposed to this based on policy standpoint. You've heard Mr. Barrett there, the health critics say very clearly that this is an intrusion into provincial jurisdiction. And he, he is right. I mean, uh, the health, the federal government doesn't usually provide or, or carry out uh, individual health care plans. But really, this is a, a political battle. I've also noticed in, in all of this, uh, the Liberals have been standing back and been very happy to have Jagmeet Singh and the NDP carry their water and lead the attacks against uh, Mr. Polyev and, and the Conservative Party on this. And I guess this is going to boil down to, is this good politics versus is this uh, good policy to me? And we've seen some economists and some even some uh, experts at the School of Dentistry at, at Western question the e efficacy of this program. But, you know, I think that's exactly the battle that liberals and new Democrats want to have with conservatives. Uh, it's the policy versus the politics on this. I I'd also know, too, that you know, this has been part of the liberal strategy dealing with the new Democrats on their package of the supply and confidence agreement called the salami strategy, where they slice off a little bit every time of a policy introduction or an announcement enough to keep the NDP happy, but not the whole chunk so they can keep it going as long as they can and avoid uh, perhaps a, a fall of that confidence agreement. So and let me ask you, is this like is this bad optics or, you know, Gary Keller uh, and some conservative MPs make the point that this is provincial jurisdiction. Um, what is going on? Why are they opposing this? Okay, I think that Anne can't hear me. Oh, so we're I'm having, sorry, Joyce. We're having, I heard you. I'm sorry, Joyce. Okay. I can hear you now. Yeah. So, so, okay, uh, so let me first... Uh, <laughs> 
Go ahead. Let, let me first say that 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 that, that the uh, NDP uh, is happy to be the major opponents to Pierre Poilievre and the Conservatives on this, and to be the ones proposing things that will help so many Canadians. So yes, we have proposed uh, uh, dental care several times now, uh, and it has been opposed by the Liberals and the Conservatives. And we finally uh, are starting the process of getting to uh, a dental care program that will help a lot of people. I think that the Conservatives are having a tough time uh, mustering their opposition to it because there is widespread support for it across the country. It will help a lot of people. It makes sense. It's targeted. It's phased in. And um, uh, I think Jagmeet Singh and the NDP are showing what, what they can do uh, when they have a balance of power in a minority parliament. Okay, well, Greg, let me ask you. So the, the, the Conservatives are suggesting tax breaks. Um, should the Liberals, and, and, and you know, this is a time, other countries are doing it, um, you know, they, they, they haven't invented the wheel. It is, it is a suggestion uh, that probably deserves a little bit of debate. Why not look into that for the government? Look, I, I kind of feel that the Conservatives here are, are sorry that they missed the boat. And the Liberals missed the boat here a little bit too. When the NDP first started talking about this, my personal reaction was, this is a great idea. You know, I grew up in an industrial town in Cape Breton, Milltown. There was one dentist, my big family. My dad was a teacher. My mom worked at home. But they would have paid for dental if there was an available dentist. The provincial government at the time did have a program where they brought dental hygienists into schools. And for a lot of us, it was our first dental care that we ever had. So, you know, it is at the root of so many health care problems. So whether it's being posed as affordability or whatever, to me, it's about the start of good health care. And I do think the NDP were very smart to pivot towards what MPs get in terms of their families in terms of dental care compared to what the, um, this initiative will actually do and who it will help. So, Anne, you know, I want to ask you uh, to change, a change topic here from, from this topic to the Green Party, considering what is, being, what is happening out there, considering Ian and Fiona, considering that these are getting, you know, so much, these, these events are getting so much more dangerous and bigger. What is happening with the Green Party? They can't seem to, to, to get it together to even start a, a, a leadership race. Well, I will tell you, Joyce, that, you know, a fundamental rule in politics is that it is not about you or the internal workings of your party. It is about people. And unfortunately, I think that the Green Party is mired in internal conflict that is corrosive and damaging. And it is, and until they come to the point, or, or if they ever come to the point where they realize that their own internal squabbles are not the important thing here, that they have to actually focus themselves outwards rather than inwards and look at what people are experiencing and look at the climate change uh, issues that we have uh, in the country and around the world, um, it, it doesn't look like uh, the future is very bright for them at, at all, at least at this point. Well, today they announced they are cutting from two rounds of voting to one in their leadership race because of the lack of resources and candidates at a time of, you know, hurricanes, climate change. So let me ask you, it seems that this would be, you know, sadly a perfect time for the Green Party. What are you hearing? Well, if you go to their website, it says the amazing green leadership race, take off of the amazing race, a great CTV program. 
But it's amazing, but not in the way I think they want it to be amazing. It's it's almost silly. They've become a caricature. And, you know, this is something that, you know, the NDP have heard for a long time. Are you a political movement or are you a political party? If you look at the numbers from, you know, the last couple of elections, 2019, they had a high. I think uh, the Greens had 6.8%. Um, it went down to 2.3% in the last election. We all know that there was a lot of problems around that leadership. And uh, Max Bernier's party had almost 5% of the vote. So I think the Green Party right now needs to, you know, start to decide what is it that they really want to do? What yeah. do they want to be? And, and go ahead and do it. Gary Keller, is the Green Party imploding? Absolutely. These folks can't seem to organize a two-car parade. Uh, you know, I almost feel like, why are we even talking about these people? Look, for the last 15 years, before she stepped down the first time, it was the Elizabeth May party. It was like a cult of personality around Elizabeth May. Uh, and uh, everything was focused around her. I thought it was a real shame, actually, when Anna Paul was elected as leader, that Elizabeth May didn't step down, give up her relatively safe seat of Saanich Gulf Islands, and let Anna Paul there to get a foothold in Parliament. And when, when she refused to make that decision, I said, this party is in real trouble. The right thing for Elizabeth May would have been to do that, to, to give Anna Paul a head start and a, and a chance in Parliament. But, you know, it's always been about Elizabeth May for the leadership of the Green Party. It seems like it's going to be that way again. And, uh, yeah, I think, you know, at some point, why are we even wasting time talking about this group, which is really just basically two independents in the House of Commons who may not be down to much more than that or less than that in, uh, in subsequent elections. Hey, you know Gary Keller, we talked about it for about three minutes. That's why well, we are. But I mean, I know what you mean. It, it is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, fascinating to watch uh, in a time when you would think that the Green Party would become actually more relevant. Uh, but that's unfortunately that's what happens all the time on roads we have. Too, when disasters are coming along and people scoff to rubberneck and look at disasters on the side of the road, I think the same thing is happening with the Green Party. <laughs> Greg McEachern, Gary Keller, and McGrath. Thanks so much, and have yourselves a lovely weekend. Thank you. Thank you. And stay with us the final, the, stay with us the final days of the Quebec election and controversial comments about immigration have sparked backlash before voters head to the polls. What does this mean for the remaining days in the trail? CTV News political analyst Tom Mulcair joins us next. Stay right here with Power Play. And welcome back. The Quebec election campaign might be winding down with voters heading to the polls Monday, but controversy is still heating up on the campaign trail. The Coalition Avenir Québec's François Legault, the Premier of Quebec, and Jean Boulet, his immigration minister, are under fire for shocking comments about immigration. François Legault said yesterday allowing more than 50,000 immigrants a year into the province would be suicidal for Quebec and its culture. And Immigration Minister Jean Boulet apologized for saying newcomers to province, they all go to Montreal, they don't work and they don't speak French. Um, the first one is true, they all go to Montreal, but 80% of them speak French and the unemployment rate is only 5%. So, how will these comments move the dial on the last days of the campaign trail? Let's find out. Joining me now is CTV News political analyst and former NDP leader Tom Mulcair. Thanks for being there, Tom. Always good to see you. Uh, let's start good with these comments about immigration. 
because um, they have faced extreme backlash from the liberals, from other parties. Um, how did the election campaign get to this? Well, part of the reason is that Francois Legault senses that uh, the, the leader of the resurgent conservative party here in Quebec, a fellow named Eric Duhem, uh, could really cost him seats. So it's been dog-whistle politics from day one. He's been going hard on these so-called identity issues. Legault himself has said that immigrants bring violence. Uh, they represent uh, all sorts of problems, including the fact that they're quarrelsome. Uh, th they don't learn the French language quickly enough, and they're tearing away at Quebec's social fabric. He even started to dust up with one of the large I indigenous communities. So this has been a strategy. This is not accidental. And maybe... <laughs> His immigration minister was trying to please his boss by going a step further, but it's completely blown up on them. And indeed, what it's done, it's, it's galvanized the, the liberals who have had, you know, a tough campaign. Their leader is a, a woman of color, a, a wonderful uh, politician named Dominique Anglade, who's done her best during this campaign. But it's been a tough ride because the Anglophones felt that they had been so hardly, badly treated by the go. A lot of them were thinking of voting for tiny protest parties. Well, I can tell you, I've been talking to people and I've been visiting around the western parts of Montreal where the liberals always had their strongest base and people are coming back to the fold thanks to Legault and his immigration minister. Now, there's something worth mentioning. Legault says that this person named Jean Boulet is now disqualified from being immigration minister. So people heard that yesterday and they waited to have a chance to talk to Legault today and they asked him straight up, you're saying that he can't be immigration minister, you mean after these racist statements you would let him back into your cabinet? And he goes, he's just not going to be the immigration minister. And he left the door completely open to him coming back in. I mean, it was a shocking series of statements. He said it was, he's the minister. He has access to all of the information. He said 80%, as you correctly said, they don't speak French. They go to Montreal. Oh, by the way, about 50, uh, 25 or so percent go to the outlying areas and not just to Montreal now. And they almost, like you say, all speak French. And they work they get jobs and they get second jobs like all immigrants, all people who want to do well to help themselves and their families when they arrive here. So it, it's that type of intolerance and dog whistle politics that we've been dealing with and Legault has been fanning the flames of that since the beginning of this campaign. And it's interesting, you know, he called the liberal leader irrelevant a few weeks ago saying, you know, this is not about sovereignists and federalists, you're irrelevant, you know, you don't, you don't mean anything anymore, but this seems to have made her more relevant. So. Do you think, and their big fear now is that people are not going to vote uh, a little bit like in Ontario because, you know, the re-election of Lugo is a done deal the way it was here in Ontario uh, for Mr. Yes. Ford. So for is, the same do reason. you feel that this really has galvanized people? Like, are people really up in arms about this? So much so that the same Eric Duen we just referred to, he was really expected to pick up several seats in the Quebec City region. And the most inform best information I've been able to get recently is that he's in trouble even in the riding he had hoped to win, which looked like a, a bit of a cinch for him. So Legault has been doing, you know, he's a very brutal politician. He's been bringing those people back into his fold. And you're right to reference, you know, Ford's recent victory in Ontario because he had an almost perfect split between the Liberals and the NDP. He had more than enough uh, with 30-some-odd percent, or close to 40 percent, in fact. Whereas here in Quebec, it looks like Legault will be closer to 34, 35 percent. That's the prediction anyway. But with those four parties splitting almost perfectly, 
the remaining 60-odd percent, you can see that with our first-past-the-post system, you can get just a bit more than one-third of the vote but have 100 percent of the power for the next four years. And that's the scenario we're looking at right now. The Liberals look like they might yeah. be losing their grip on official opposition status. I would say that the events of the past two days, Joyce, have probably managed to firm that up. Anglad should be she should be able to hold on to official opposition status. She will get more seats from everything I've been able to see than Quebec Solidaire, which is looking to be yeah. the second place party. That's a very progressive, very left wing separatist party. And it's interesting because even the separatist vote, which has always been in the thirty to thirty five percent range, that is split almost perfectly between the old guard Parti Québécois and the upstart Quebec Solidaire, this left left wing yeah. party that I just referred to. And the first time there are five parties uh, in Quebec in an yeah. election. Really interesting. And we'll know and, on and Monday, and Tom will care. Thanks again for joining us. And Good we'll to be, be talking you. to you again, I am sure, on Monday. Yep, will do. And coming up, a clash on dental coverage puts the MP's extensive plan under the spotlight. The press gallery digs into this and more next with their political plays and misplays of the week. Power Play will be right back. And welcome back. The Prime Minister spent much of the week in storm-ravaged Atlantic Canada, but here in Ottawa, political debate continued with MPs clashing over a proposed dental benefit for low-income Canadians with light casts on their own coverage and another bid to lower the voting age getting shot down. So who scored the political wins and who took the losses? Let's bring in the press gallery, ctvnews.ca online polit politics producer Rachel Ayello is here. She writes the must-read Capital Dispatch newsletter and One Dish, One Mic host Carl Dockstetter. He's also here. He's also the executive director of the Niagara Regional Native Center. Nice to see you both. And happy Thursday. Um, Rachel, let me start with you. You have a play today. I do. I'm going to give my play this week to the NDP for the way that they've been going after the Conservatives' opposition to the dental plan. I think it's been a really interesting technique for them to point out the fact that Conservatives, like all MPs, experience far more generous coverage than they are proposing through this benefit. And I think it's a play, Joyce, for two reasons. One, it's very clearly uh, messaging that Canadians can understand. It's that, like, I'm entitled to my entitlements idea of what do you mean the Conservatives and their families get far better coverage in their and diming low-income Canadians. Uh, and secondly, I think it feeds into the NDP's longer-term narrative they're trying to craft around Pierre Polyev, saying, you know, he's not in it for you, pointing back to his Harper-era record. So I think for them, this strategy of going after this dental care thing in a very clear, digestible way is a win. Carl, the Conservatives are arguing the government should focus on lowering taxes, uh, the cost of living, you know, to help the cost of living, and instead of rolling out a dental program. So what do you think of that and, the, and, and, and you know, Rachel's play? Yeah, I, I think that that's the agenda that the Conservatives are trying to set. But we just heard a clip from Jagmeet Singh who tied this specifically to Pierre Polyev. And, and I think it's a good strategy because Pierre Polyev is, is trying to sort of be the everyman and save everybody money on their taxes. But we all know that he's been in office for, for quite a long time. And so for Jagmeet Singh to point that out and to tie this to Pierre Polyev, I think it's going to undermine some of the longer term plans that the Conservatives have. 
Okay, but to be fair, uh, uh, Rachel, Jagmeet Singh gets the same plan. He's an MP. Uh, they all get the same plan, but it, it is almost like the others don't deserve it. And this is a 600, up to $650 for low-income families, for children, whereas the MPs get a very generous one. Um, do you think this has legs? Potentially, but I think they have to kind of play their cards carefully because, like you said, this is not a full-blown dental care plan. Like, we are very far away from what the government is proposing being a universal dental care similar, comparable at least, to what MPs get. And so there's a vulnerability, I think, for the NDP there in not overplaying this hand and recognizing that uh, as much as they're calling this a win and a victory, uh, it's still far from what they initially had billed that they were going to get out of this deal. True that. So, Carl, you are handing out a misplay. So who's getting one from you today? Well, this is my first time playing here, so I, I better make sure that this is a good one. Uh, I, I want to give a misplay for intergovernmental affairs uh, minister Dominic LeBlanc saying that the liberals can step to include young people in democracy, but then going and having all but 20 liberals voting against the voting age bill. Uh, to me, I mean, it seems like the, the liberals are saying one thing and then doing another thing that this seems to be a discussion that, that has some merit. I understand the last federal election had a pretty high turnout. But I, I live in a province that, that had less than 50% turnout in our last provincial election. So I, I think this warrants more discussion. And I think that this is, again, uh, Justice Minister David Lametti saying that electoral reform is, is a live issue. But the liberals have been saying that for, for a while. So I think it's a misplay. So you think that lowering it to 16-year-olds to would, would, be, would be a good thing, would get more people engaged, more young people engaged? I think that uh, a lot of 16-year-olds I know are more responsible than, than some adults that I know. Uh, other other countries have tried this. And, and honestly, you want young people engaged in, in your civic process. So I think it's a good strategic move from the NDP. But, but yeah, I also personally think that the, the younger that you can get people involved, the more commitment they're going to have to the system. Okay, Rachel, I don't have a lot of time yet, but I'm wondering, is, you know, uh, Canada not ready to have this conversation? Well, if the Prime Minister is not ready, despite his youth council telling him he should be, and Pierre Polyev voting against this, despite a bunch of 14-year-olds presumably voting in a leadership race that saw him elected to be leader, if the political leadership and the will is not there, even if Canadians might be ready, I don't think it's a conversation that's going to be had. So are there other countries, Carl, very quickly, that, that have a 16-year-old uh, voting age? Yeah, there are other countries. I know Scotland is one, um, and, and there are some others that have, that have tried this. And it, it does. It engages younger people. Absolutely. And I kind of agree with you about, you know, I know some 16-year-olds that are more responsible than adults. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> I think we all do. All right. Well, Rachel and Carl, thank you so much uh, for being here. And, and you know, Carl, you did really well for your first one. So okay, All right. I give you an A for that. And that's your Power Play Day in politics. Thank you for joining us. We will be back right here on Monday, same time, same place. And you can follow CTV's special coverage of the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation tomorrow right here on CTV News Channel. Have a safe and happy weekend.